Do any of you know who this gentleman is? Nobody. Okay, I thought maybe some of you in the business world might have crossed paths with him or maybe some of his information. His name is Clint Pulver, and he's a world-class musician, and he's a motivational speaker. He's actually hired by a lot of business. You see this one, especially re employee in, uh, retention. Um, and he's, he's a man of faith. Unfortunately, he's not of the Christian faith, but you can tell he is a, has an awareness of God, and he cares about other people. In fact, at one point in Clint's life, somebody did something for him, and so he's made it his life work to help others. This is Clint's story. I have a lot of memories from when I was a child. One that's always stuck out to me, though, was when I was about 10 years old, and I was in school, and I struggled. And I, I didn't struggle with English, math, or science. I struggled holding still. And I would try to listen and focus and process ideas, but I couldn't help myself. And to be honest, I would sit there and then I would just start tapping. And the students in the class would look at me and they'd say, hey, stop tapping. A lot of the time, I didn't even realize I was doing it. And then eventually even the teachers got after me and they would yell at me and they'd say, Clint, you have to stop tapping. It got so bad that I got sent to the principal's office for tapping. And he said to me, okay, maybe when you go back to class, just try sitting on your hands. And so I did. I went back to class, and when I felt myself starting to tap, I just, I did this. I sat on my hands. And that worked for about five seconds. One time I was tapping in class, and my teacher, Mr. Jensen, he looked at me, and he yelled. And he said, Clint, stay after class. And I thought to myself, this is it, I am done. Now I've always been the type of person that believes that a single moment in time can change a person's life. And this was one of those moments for me and I will never forget it. And so I was sitting there with Mr. Jensen and an empty classroom. And he walked past me and he sat next to his desk and he said, Clint, come here, I wanna talk to you. And as he looked me right in the eye, he said, now, I need you to know something, you're not in trouble. But I do have just one question that I have to ask you. And he asked, he said, have you ever thought about playing the drums? And in that moment, Mr. Jensen, he leaned back and he opened the top drawer of his desk. And he reached in and he pulled out my very first pair of drumsticks. And he held them in his hands and he looked at me and he said, hey Clint, you're not a problem. I think you're a drummer. From that moment on, I've never put those sticks down. I've toured, recorded, and played drums all over the world. My whole college education was paid for with drumsticks in my hand. Just because of a single moment in time, when somebody believed in me, and he saw something in me that I didn't even see within myself. And from that moment, I learned that there's a difference between being the best in the world and being the best for the world. That video is uh, known as Be a Mr. Jensen, and uh, you can look it up on YouTube or whatever, but it, it's a really moving story. I wanted to start with that because it leads perfectly into what we're going to be studying today. 
And let me just share with you a little bit of a personal perspective, because I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Christian church. My dad was a pastor, so I was constantly exposed to the Word of God. Thank the Lord I was. And we were taught again and again that because of the tremendous love of our God, He has blessed us with the gift of faith that Christ paid for all of our sins, and that the ultimate goal of our loving God is to spend eternity with Him in heaven. It's a, a, an amazing message. We heard how people are on that path of discovery, like in our epistle lesson with that Ethiopian eunuch, and how it does literally not only change our lives, but change our eternities. That said, as I think back to my younger years, especially with my generation, it feels like that a lot of time was spent focusing on eternity, that we didn't spend nearly enough time speaking about what that faith means for our lives right here and right now. I think especially my generation was not encouraged with the reality that one of the only reasons why God leaves us on this twisted and broken planet is because he would have us, until that day we enter into his eternal glory, make a mark on other people's lives. God would have us make an impact on other people's lives, showing them the same love that God has shown to us. I can't think of any other good reason why God would leave us here after he gives us the gift of faith, other than we can be exactly what we confess this morning, a light shining in this very dark world. That's going to be the focus of our lesson today. We're going to come across a man, a lesser known from Scripture, that I would suspect most of us have never even heard of. We heard of Jeremiah, maybe even heard of the king that ruled at that time, Zedekiah. Kind of sticks with us because he was the last of the kings of Judah. But this man, Ebed-Melech, you just don't really hear much of him. God has chosen to record his name, this one place in all of Scripture, to teach us that there is a way for us as children of God to truly make an impact on the lives of others and be a blessing to this world. And that is to show the same kind of reckless love to them that God has chosen to show to us. This is our lesson. But Abed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Abed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Now, for this to make a lot of sense to us, we have to kind of unwind the context. And at first it might seem a little bit overly complicated or a little bit of TMI. But if we work through it methodically, I think it will only enhance what God has recorded for us. And part of the reason why we have so much information is this is one of those interesting situations where Bible history intersects with world history. Not only does Scripture fill the blanks in for us, but there's a lot of historical records that they've been able to unearth that corroborates what we're going to study this morning. In case in point, we know exactly when this took place. The year was 587 B.C. The Babylonians are the nation that are in power. And God is using them as one of his instruments to offer a course of correction to his own people, the southern kingdom of Judah, the nation from whom Messiah would come. I'll let you read this other information over my shoulder, but there's a couple points I would simply like to bring out for you. At this point, things have reached a critical part in Judah's history. And God is basically offering them an opportunity to learn a lesson that it seemed they just refused to learn, to put more trust in God and his plans than in their own plans. Most people are familiar with the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem, and all of the destruction that happened throughout the land. But what most people overlook is the fact that it didn't have to be that way. 
God sent the prophet Jeremiah who faithfully delivered this message. If you surrender to the Babylonians, not only will I spare your lives, but the city of Jerusalem will not be destroyed. Of course, we know from history, they refused to listen to what God said through Jeremiah the prophet. And in fact, they chose to believe the exact opposite. Many in the government chose to listen to false prophets who had made the claim that God would never allow this beautiful city of David to be destroyed because after all, they were God's people and this is where God's temple was located. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's a few other things to note. One is at this point, the Babylonian army has encircled the city of Jerusalem. It's under siege, meaning nobody could go in and nobody could go out. And so the supplies, the food was quickly dwindling down. And yet despite the difficult conditions, God's prophet Jeremiah, day after day, would deliver the message that God sent him to speak. Well, of course, you can figure out this angered many of the officials in the government, so much so that they had the king uh, have Jeremiah arrested, and he was actually confined. He was imprisoned first, before we ever get to the whole cistern thing in our lesson today. There's two places logistically I would like us to take note of. One is the palace of King Zedekiah, because surrounding that palace was known as the courtyard of the guard. That's where Jeremiah was originally imprisoned, and eventually that's where he was put into the cistern. That cistern was in that courtyard. The other thing to note is the Benjamin Gate in the city of Jerusalem. And at that time, it's still a much smaller city, but it's one of the main gates into the city of Jerusalem, and we hear that as a place in our lesson today. Now I'll simply let you kind of peruse some of the uh, verses that lead up to our text. This is the context telling us how King Zedekiah was a godless king. He didn't believe Jeremiah's message. He was also very much a coward when these officials came to him accusing Jeremiah of treason and basically saying he should be executed. King Zedekiah says, there's nothing I can do to stand in your way, which is a bold-faced lie. He's the king after all. He can command them to just stand down. Interestingly enough, long before the man in our lesson intercedes to help Jeremiah, we find that the Lord is solidly by his side protecting him. Because when they're given permission to execute Jeremiah, they don't. And we don't know why. Maybe it was for fear of the fact that he was a prophet of God. Maybe that carried some weight with them, even though they didn't want to believe him. Maybe they were afraid of the people who were listening to Jeremiah's message. We've seen this again and again in Scripture, that oftentimes leaders are very cowardly when they think the people might retaliate. Whatever it was, God spared Jeremiah's life, and they come up with a solution. Let's throw him into the cistern. And since it was empty of water but had a very muddy bottom, there was no chance he was going to escape. And on the other hand, he would slowly and painfully starve to death because there was little to no food left in the city. Which brings us to our lesson today, and we're introduced to this man, Ebed-Melech. The first thing I need to tell you is that's not actually his name. We don't know this man's personal name. That's how anonymous he is in all of Scripture. If you look at the two Hebrew words, Ebed is the word for servant. Melech is the word for king. He is a servant of the king. It's listing his official position. And we have further information of what position he holds within the king's court because he's referred to as an official in the translation. But the actual word sari means to castrate. That gives us insight into the fact that the man is a eunuch. Well, what does that tell us about his position? It has to do with this tradition that oftentimes servants to the king or to the king's family would be chosen from amongst the eunuchs 
because of the process of castration, these people would have less sinful passions and urges which might lead them away or to abuse the royal family, and they were much more cooperative and trustworthy than other men's servants who had not been through that process. So not only do we find that he's very close to the king logistically, but he's also amongst, if not the single most trusted servant that King Zedekiah has. We find that that same process was still being used in the New Testament. That's why that lesson was chosen. That man that Philip runs into by the will of the Holy Spirit was also a man who held such a position. Eunuchs typically were some of the closest, most trusted of servants. Well, what does that say about what the Lord was doing and why he would use them? We find also that he is identified as a Cushite. That's more of the name of the ancient uh, land in Africa. It would be modern-day Sudan today, which tells us simply one thing. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And if you know anything about the history of the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't always get along. But if you stop for a moment and think through this lesson, it sounds very similar, parallel, if you would, of the parable that Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan, that a man who had been harmed by robbers was not helped by the priest, the pastor, or the Levites, the church helpers or elders, we might say. He was actually helped by a Samaritan, a natural-born enemy of the Jewish people. Jesus tells this parable to a young man who had asked him about serving his neighbor. Jesus wanted to give us a beautiful picture of what it means for us to recklessly love other people in our lives, whether they're close to us or not, even if they're our enemies. The difference in today's lesson is it's not a parable. Ebed Melech actually lived and lived through to give us this example of what it means to love others. Well, this is what that love looks like in process. So once Ebed-Melech hears about Jeremiah being put in that cistern in the courtyard of the guard, he immediately leaves the comfort and safety of the palace and goes across the upper city, the king's arena within the city of Jerusalem, and finds the king at the Benjamin Gate. You might think, well, what's that all about? You need to understand that in those days, a great deal of business was conducted at the major and main gates to the city of Jerusalem. Business affairs would be conducted there. Debates and disputes were solved there. In fact, the king would often station himself at some of the more popular gates where he would adjudicate between the people in Israel. He would be the one that would solve their disputes. Now, to understand the full context, notch that up a bit. Here comes, Zedekiah, um, here comes Ebed-Melech interrupting Zedekiah, who is busy taking care of his official duties and seeing to the needs of the people during a time that the city is under attack and besieged. You can imagine how stressful it was for Zedekiah to have to listen to person after person whining and moaning how little food there was or that their neighbors stole what little they had left. It was into this intense situation that Ebed-Melech inserts himself and he tells the king something that he didn't know. You had given permission for these officials to get rid of Jeremiah, but what they've done is even more cruel than you might have thought. They've put him in the cistern and he's slowly but surely starving to death. Ebed-Melech, as trustworthy as he was, dared to approach the king and call him to account for the injustice that he allowed to take place in his own kingdom, and he calls for him to make things right. Now, it shows us a courageous side of Ebed-Melech, but it shows us something else. We see the courage in the fact that he was willing to embarrass the king in front of his subjects as he's doing his job. I'm not sure I would have done something like that. 
He's willing to risk his own life, and that's why his love was reckless. He didn't concern himself with the consequences to himself. He risked angering the government officials who wanted Jeremiah dead. Because when news got back that Ebed-Melech was the one who had rescued him and worked this all out, you can imagine where their anger was going to turn. But this was more than human courage or human compassion for another individual. These were acts of faith, and we see that from two different words that are included in our lesson. First is when he goes to King Zedekiah and reports what these men had done, he describes them as being evil. And you might think, well, duh, pastor, look at what they did. They threw a man in a pit hoping he would die. It's the word that he uses. It's not just that they were bad men. He says they are morally corrupt. Basically, he says their absence of any ethical understanding, which directly takes us back to God, because God is the one who sets the standards of ethics. That's how we know what God's will is and what God's will isn't. Basically, what Evan Melek does is he goes to the king, who didn't trust in God in the first place, and says, King, these men who are doing these evil things against Jeremiah don't care what God has to say. So you get it. In a way, it was a backhanded accusation against the king himself. This man's got the guts to say that to his king. The other word was he describes Jeremiah as a prophet. And there's three ways in which that word is used in the Old Testament. Either you're talking about a genuine prophet, either you're talking about a false prophet, or you're talking about a heathen prophet. The context here clearly indicates that when Ebed-Melech delivers his message to the king, he is saying he recognizes Jeremiah as a man who speaks God's truth. As hard as it was to hear that message that destruction was coming and that it was because of the sinfulness of God's own people, as difficult as that message was, Ebed-Melech believed the words that Jeremiah had to say. In fact, it might well have been Jeremiah who led Ebed-Melech into the kingdom of God. Part of what we're hearing today is, is that sometimes we have to be compassionate enough and courageous enough to do the right thing. But more so, considering what the Lord himself has chosen for us to do while we live on this very broken planet, is that he would call upon our faith and show reckless love to others. Quite honestly, there is no other good reason for any of us to be here other than to let our light shine so that the world can understand how much God loves us and the best way for us weak and broken human beings to do that is to show the world how much we understand that God has chosen to sacrifice and the things that he has done so that he recklessly loves you and loves me. And this is how God blesses Ebed Melech's uh, uh, labors. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. That's the last part of it. But if you go on with the verses... The king grants Ebed-Melech's wish, and he says, you can rescue him. In fact, he says, take 30 men along, 30 soldiers, because he kind of knew there'd be some retaliatory efforts on behalf of the government officials. And we might think that's all well and good, but once more we see insight into the heart of Ebed-Melech, because he could have simply got a rope, tied it off, and thrown it down in the pit and go, there you go, Jeremiah, I've done my human duty. But he doesn't. He goes and gets a rope, but then he also goes and gets a bunch of rags and he throws them down to Jeremiah and says, put them underneath your arms so we can lift you out. He understood what would have happened if you try and yank a man out of a muddy pit and the damage that might have done to his body. But he also understood that Jeremiah had been starving to death and in this diminished state, there's no way he was going to pull himself out of this pit. So God sends Ebed-Melech into the life of Jeremiah and though Ebed-Melech isn't the man that you remember for changing the world, he did change Jeremiah's life. Sometimes it takes a little bit of work to figure out the lessons from these lesser known. 
And sometimes they're right there staring us right in the face. Obviously, by now, you figured out that the good Lord would have us imitate this man's actions, especially from a heart of faith, because there are a lot of people in this world who desperately need help. And you or I might be in the perfect position at the right time to be that messenger of God, much like Ebed-Melech, to deliver not only the truth, but also a living example of God's love towards us. When we talk about doing this recklessly, it suggests that we do it without stopping to weigh out the consequences for ourselves. Because sometimes showing compassion the way God has shown us compassion means we will have to make sacrifices. After all, that's exactly what a son did for us, making a sacrifice to show love to others and to rescue this world. And again, that's not our job to save the world. That's his son's job. But God does call upon us to maybe make a difference one person at a time. But there's something else here, and I've never seen it before. I'm a little embarrassed to say it's taken me this long to figure some of this out. Maybe it's because of the education I did or, or didn't get. But not only is this something God would have us do to show love to others, but there's a true creation design benefit in all of this for us. Let me tell you, I'll give you a real life example. I don't know if you noticed or not, but we had the carpets cleaned in the church this week. And they really needed it, especially after the rummage sale. But that's not really my point. My point is, is the young man that God sent here to clean the carpets. I tell you, it's been a long time since I've met anybody who exhibited that kind of joy That kind of, you could tell he's just a kind man, and he was really, truly happy to be here. You could tell he's the kind of man that wants to make a difference, and a lot of people wouldn't get excited about cleaning carpets. I know I've done that in my own lifetime. It isn't one of those funnest jobs, and not a lot of people are going to slap you on the back and go, those are A1 carpets, Pastor. It just doesn't go that way. And yet you could tell that he truly liked making a difference. He loved being here. I don't know if, if Holly felt that way, but I did. I chatted with him for a while, and after he left, my whole day was just brighter. He had an impact on, on my life, and I understand the love of God. I, I share it with people on a regular basis, but it's when it's a living message, and it touches other people's lives, it leaves a lasting effect. And while we give thanks to God for sending people like that into our lives, even if it just brightens the day, there is something else here that God has done that if we really understand it, we will have to stop for a moment with our jaws to the ground and praise God for his amazing and beautiful creation. Unfortunately, sin has shadowed and shaded so much of this that oftentimes we can't see it. But God designed within us to be blessed ourselves when we show reckless love to others. Sometimes it's easy to feel like the world's getting harder. But if we look closer, on the news, on the web, on the street, we're anything but unkind. Every day, we hear new stories of people trying to make the world a better place. And together, we can make the world that little bit kinder for all of us. It all starts with just one person, you. The thing about kindness is that it's just about the only thing in the world that doubles when you share it. And it's a fact, backed by science. Studies have shown that if you perform just one random act of kindness a day, you'll not only reduce your stress, anxiety, and depression, but your body is flooded with the same hormones that make you and the person you've helped calmer, healthier, and happier. Serotonin, which heals your wounds, helps you relax and makes you feel good. 
endorphins, which reduce pain, and oxytocin, which reduces blood pressure and makes you feel more loving and loved. You'll both be more energized, feel less aches and pains, more confident, and could even live longer. And if other people see you helping someone else, they'll be filled with those same feel-good hormones, meaning they're significantly more likely to pay it forward. Like taking that extra moment to hold the elevator for someone, spotting a coffee for a stranger who's just a few cents short, giving your neighbor a hand with their groceries, even just smiling and meaning it. It doesn't take much, but it can make a huge difference for everyone. Those people you've helped will help other people, and those other people will help even more people. And those random acts of kindness can start a chain reaction that can spread across an entire community, a city, a country, and with enough of us, the world. Now, isn't that the world we all want? And it all starts with one. I'm not suggesting that we show kindness to others because we're going to derive some personal benefit from it. What I'm suggesting is we stop and give thanks to God that in his brilliance, in his all-knowingness, he chose to use kindness as a means not only to bless others, but to bless us. And when you do that from a heart of faith, it's a double blessing because it helps us to appreciate something that the nation of Judah, after a while, simply forgot or just didn't care about. That God would recklessly choose to love us and, and then put his money where his mouth is to send his son. Obviously, this is the single greatest example of love. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. We should have our eyes fixed on eternity. But one of the things that we often overlook is that our own Messiah, our Savior, before he ever loved us there, showed us what it looked like to love others there. In his own life, Jesus chose to love others that most people didn't have the time of day for, that most people tried to avoid, that most people would point fingers at and call sinners and unclean. And yet Jesus not only welcomed them, but ran to them and showed his kindness and love that he was bringing to an entire world, even to the people that nailed him to the cross. Part of how we can appreciate today's lesson is, is that we've all been where Jeremiah was at. And every once in a while, it is such an amazing miracle and blessing when God chooses to send an Ebed Meleg into our lives. The lesson from the lesson known today is, is that quite possibly God is offering each of us opportunities to be that kind of helper and show that kind of kindness that Ebed Meleg showed to Jeremiah. And the truth is, it won't change the world. But there's nothing that sends a louder and clearer message in a world filled with hate than when God's children choose instead to follow their Savior and show reckless love. It won't rescue everybody, but it certainly will change one person's life. When we're laying on our deathbed, you're not going to worry about how much money you had, how much power you had, how much prestige, you're gonna see that that was all game, that that was all an illusion. The only thing that's gonna matter is the impact you had on other people's lives. We are all on a separate journey. But the beautiful thing about our life here on this earth is at my funeral, they ain't gonna talk about my success. They're gonna talk about who Nick was.
and how Nick lived and how Nick loved and encouraged. Success is incredibly important, but even more important than success, it's having an impact. It's knowing you haven't walked the planet in vain. It's knowing that because you've been here, you've blessed lives, you've developed people, and you have made the world a better place. The effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart. And all that will be left of you is what was in your heart. Life is a mirror. And life gives us not what we want. Life gives us who we are. When you were born, you cried while the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries while you rejoice.